Thank you, Alan, and what a cracking show. Well done. Good evening and thanks for staying with us. I'm Fred Paul and for the next hour, the Common Sense will continue. Tonight, I will be speaking with Professor David Flint who has plenty to say on this Pelosi visit to Taiwan and the Politicians Republic. I'll also speak with Nick Cater who begins a new show here on ADH-TV tomorrow night at 8 p.m. called Nick Cater's Battleground. So we'll yarn with Nick and get his views on the big issues. Remember, it's easy to watch. Just search ADH-TV on the Apple TV App Store or the Google Play Store. Or you can listen on the podcast. Search Fred Paul wherever you listen to your podcasts. There's plenty of content on ADH-TV to keep you entertained. Well, after years of fear-mongering about man-made climate change destroying the Great Barrier Reef, the so-called experts have been proven wrong yet again. It turns out that although Rudd Government Climate Commissioner Tim Flannery says there are, quote, serious questions about whether the reef can be saved from climate change, the reef has never been larger. This morning, the government admitted that coral reef cover on the reef is now two to three times what it was a decade ago in a report released by the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences. The report said the Great Barrier Reef had registered, quote, the highest levels of coral cover yet recorded in the northern and central regions over the past 36 years of monitoring. In the southern region, quote, regional coral cover declined slightly, unquote, but it was due to ongoing outbreaks of the parasitic crown of thorns starfish. Its conclusion was, quote, the trends of coral cover are highly variable across the reef, with most reefs having between 10 and 50% hard coral cover, unquote. And these results come a year after the Institute of Marine Sciences' last report, which said, quote, coral cover has increased significantly to a record high value of 28% with no serious coral bleaching found at all, unquote. Well, how good is that? So for two years in a row, the reef has been as large and healthy as it's ever been. This means the ABC, the Greens and left, left sides of the major political parties owe the farmers and miners they demonise for an apology, an apology for claiming they're destroying the reef. But it's not all good news. It turns out that earlier this year, the Morrison government gave another billion dollars in funding to organisations that purport to protect the reef. This came after Malcolm Turnbull gave a dodgy 444 million grant to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation after just 11 days and with no tender process. And last month, Labor Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek tweeted, quote, Climate change is the biggest threat to the Great Barrier Reef. That's why Labor has committed $1.2 billion towards the reef, unquote. Well, will you be giving that $1.2 billion and the other billions spent over the years back to the taxpayer, Tanya? Of course not. We've seen all this before. For years, we've been told that, quote, Australia's ski slopes could become snow-free by 2050, unquote, even though Perisher recorded record snowfalls this winter. We've been told that the rain that comes down won't fill our dams, even though we've had record rainfall and our dams are now overflowing, causing floods thanks to the failure of governments 
to build more of them. And we've been told that rising sea levels are sinking the Pacific Islands, even though a recent analysis of over 600 coral reef islands in the Pacific and Indian Oceans showed that 80% of islands either remained stable or increased in area. When will all this end? How many times do we need to prove these people wrong? They won't stop with the doomsday prophecies until a green government grants gravy train is derailed. It's as simple as that. As soon as government and work corporations cease handing out subsidies and grants to organizations that promote hysterical views on man-made climate change, the fear-mongering will then stop. And only then will we get the real science. Not science conjured up to push a political agenda, but real science, like the work that comes from Professor Peter Ridd. You'll remember, Peter Ridd was sacked by James Cook University six years ago after questioning the theory that man-made climate change is killing the reef. And not only has he been vindicated, but the bloke is now over the moon. In response to the good news this morning, Ridd said, quote, ring the church bells and give the children a day off. We must celebrate our Great Barrier Reef is brilliant, unquote. Well, it sure is. To borrow the words of Walter Stark, a marine biologist who has spent much of his career studying coral reef and marine fishery ecosystems, there has been an, quote, abandonment of basic research in favour of finding, promoting and investigating environmental threats. Academics are basically office workers. Vanishingly few have the extended experience of a given reef over the seasons and years needed to recognise the degree of natural variability involved. Stark went on, there is now a whole generation of researchers who see every fluctuation of nature as evidence of some impact caused by humans. All but a few of the nearly 3,000 reefs which make up the Great Barrier Reef are rarely or never fished or even visited. Pollution from the distant and lightly populated land is undetectable, unquote. But they are detectable to people whose careers depend on finding them. Well, Anthony Albanese has done it. A mere 73 days after being sworn in as Prime Minister and against an irrational and erratic crossbench, he struck a deal to get his signature climate change bill through Parliament. This was the flagship policy of the Labor election campaign, but there was never a guarantee he'd get it up, especially in the Senate where Labor doesn't hold a majority. The backroom deals that ensured this bill's passage probably required the sort of skills that only a lifelong politician like Albo possesses. So you wouldn't have been surprised if Albo came strutting out from his office with his head held high and chest puffed out yesterday to triumphantly announce this historic moment to the press. After all, this bill is going to help save not only Australia, but the entire planet from a climate catastrophe. According to Labor's own Powering Australia policy document, Climate change is responsible for not only, quote, the shocking black summer bushfires, but also the growing intensity and frequency of other national natural disasters and weather events like floods and heat waves. Climate change has also caused an 800% increase 
in land area burned in Australia over the past 32 years, according to none other than the CSIRO. Alleviating this is one thing, but shifting to renewables is another. Doing so will apparently unlock almost unimaginable economic opportunity and prosperity. So let's see how Albo kicks off this career-defining announcement. Thanks for joining me again this morning. Uh, on May 21st, Australians voted for action on climate change. They voted for the Australian Labor government's plan, which is for 43% emissions reduction by 2030, for the national energy market to be 82% renewables by 2030, I won't bore you with the whole thing, but that smile at the start is the only one he manages during the entire initial two-minute announcement. For almost all of those two minutes, he sounds like he's reading the fine print in his electricity bill. Why so serious, Albo? Well, maybe the cause of this lack of conviction can be found in what he said. Quote, On May 21st, Australians voted for action on climate change. Unquote. Arguably not. The Australian people were given a choice between two major parties offering slight variations of the same climate policy. Of those, the one with the more extreme policy, Labor, received less of the primary vote, 32.6%, its lowest since 1934. What else did Albo say? Quote, they voted for the Australian Labor government's plan which is a 43% emissions reduction by 2030, and for the national energy market to be 82% renewables by 2030. These figures are a death sentence for any government, and it's reasonable to assume that Albo knows it. Committing to these targets will destroy Australian industries and make Australians worse off. They'll hit the, they'll hit the poor the hardest, these are the people Albo supposedly identifies with the most. This isn't conjecture. We're seeing it happen already all around the world. In Germany, a country that got a good head start on us on the road to renewables, this winter, the elderly will be, will be reduced to huddling together in halls repurposed as, quote, warming places. In Britain, up to 40% of people will this winter be, quote, fuel poor because heating their homes will drive their disposable income to below the poverty level. Now, Albo claims to have been given a mandate for all this, but the only mandate he really had was a quiet dinner for two in a parliamentary dining room with, with Greens leader Adam Bant to horse trade the bill through, through the Senate. This is one of the fundamental flaws of our federation that our founding fathers didn't envisage, Senators who are meant to represent their state's interests, instead holding the government in the lower house to ransom over pet topics that only a minority of their compatriots care about. Bant was adamant during the election campaign that he wouldn't even compromise with Labor. Labor was visionless, he said at his campaign launch, and the Greens would keep Labor on track. Well, what a difference a couple of months make. At the, at the National Press Club this week, Bant said he'd decided to back Labor's bill because he'd also negotiated in greater transparency and, quote, strengthened requirements on the Climate Change Authority. Those requirements are easy to pick 
in the Climate Change Bill's explanatory memorandum. They're the clauses that bear the distinctly authoritarian style of Bant's cranky troop of loopy green finger waggers. After listing, all, after listing all the ways the minister must bow and scrape to the unelected climate change authority, the, memor the memorandum makes this hilariously matronly dictate. Quote, If the minister does not follow or disagrees with the advice of the climate change authority, then the minister must explain why. Unquote. Take that, you elected representative of the Philistine masses. If Albo looked worried while announcing this plan, he had reason to. To hit 82% renewables using, say, windmills, he'd need to cover 33,000 square kilometres of Australia with the giant bird minces, or 8,900 square kilometres with ugly black Chinese-made solar panels. That would be hideous enough, but what would this cost us in dollars? Albo assures us the whole thing has been costed, but the, but, but the precise figure is difficult to find. I did find this oddly dismissive assertion in the bill's memorandum, quote, there is no financial impact associated with this bill, unquote. Well, surely transforming a nation's energy, energy supply is not that easy. When Bill Shorten took a similar policy to reduce emissions by 45% by 2030 to the, to the electorate in 2019, he said the cost was irrelevant because what price do you put on saving the planet? So economist Brian Fisher did it for him and found that the policy would cost Australia up to $542 billion and about 167,000 jobs by 2030. Somehow, Albo's plan will have the opposite effect. And they voted for the fully costed modelling that we had, uh, with 604,000 new jobs to be created as a result of this plan, five out of every six of them in regional Australia. Cheer up, Albo. Anyway. This diverges from what Queensland think tank, the Australian Institute for Progress, found this week. It released a report saying that shutting down coal and gas power generation in Queensland would cause the state's debt to increase by 25%, unemployment to hit 12%, and the state's productivity to permanently decrease by 7%. Predicting the effects of these policies obviously varies a lot depending on who you talk to. Whose figures are correct? Maybe the answer to that is on the stressed expression of Albo's face. Now, here's a question. Would you eat one of these? What is it? Well, for those who don't know, it's a Beyond Meat plant-based Sweet Italian sausage. Mm, looks like something a Greens MP would like. Here's another one. See the text? It says, quote, if every person in the US replaced just one beef burger per week with a plant-based Beyond Burger, it would be equivalent to taking 12 million cars off the road. In other words, eat our product and save the world. And who's bought this? 
Well, some of the world's investment banks who've helped finance the product. Green elites Bill Gates and Leonardo DiCaprio have invested heavily in the company. The Canadian government gave $153 million to Beyond Meat to, quote, keep Beyond Meat on the menu. Millions of mum and dad investors poured their hard-earned savings into the company, which went up a whopping 250% three months after listing, thanks to a green hype and the backing of major brands. The payback on the investment? Well, Beyond Meat has just been dumped by McDonald's, who said its trial of the McPlant burger had failed after testing in 600 restaurants across the US. Beyond Meat's stock price has lost 85% of its value since its euphoric highs. And it only gets worse for the vegan alternative to good old beef. Beyond Meat is now being criticised for not being as sustainable as the big banks, woke celebrities and idiotic politicians thought it was. Turns out that Beyond Meat used alternative proteins derived from soy or peas grown in large fields comprising only that plant type. You know what that's called, monoculture farming. The issue of monocultures will have impact on soil erosion. They depend heavily on fossil fuels because of the fertilizers and they're, not, they're a nightmare for bio, biodiversity, says Frederick Leroy, a, pro, a professor at a uni university in Brussels. The beef side of the story? A new study that came out of a soil carbon program in central Queensland last month has found that for every one kilogram of beef produced on a property, 50 kilograms of carbon is sequestered. The conclusion? Beef is good for soil. And the weird green-inspired vegan alternative to beef is bad for the soil and the wider environment. You couldn't make this up if you tried. And yet the mask-wearing, blue-haired, tattooed, inner-Sydney, Melbourne lefty with gender-neutral pronouns will continue walking into their overpriced vegan supermarket to buy this crap. Also, they can feel as if they're doing their part to save the planet from white men and climate change. They're just bonkers. Now, every week we talk to the erudite and, it must be said, mellifluous Professor David Flint. And isn't there an abundance of topics to discuss today? The issue of the Republic is to our national debate what rising damp is to an inner city terrace house. No matter how much glorious sunshine you enjoy from the nicer parts of the house, down in the basement, last week's rain is propagating a toxic crop of mould that would eat away at the foundations if it could. Professor Flint and the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy fought off a formidable wave of Republicans in 1999. The Republicans licked their wounds and kept their heads low for a while, but they are back with a vengeance now that they have one of their own in the Prime Minister's office. We'll talk to Professor Flint about whether Australia's foundations can withstand another assault in a second. But first, we saw an international incident this week that was like a scene from a mad mashup of James Bond and Austin Powers. In a move that somehow managed to provoke both the White House and the Chinese Communist Party, United States Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi flew to Taiwan for some seemingly trivial meetings.
Not even Joe Biden knew what she was doing there. Biden was reportedly in the middle of sensitive negotiations to keep China out of Russia's war in Ukraine. And suddenly the third most powerful person in the US government was flying in for an attention-seeking trip to Taiwan. Was she deliberately trying to undermine the only foreign policy success the president has had? Beijing drew the usual lines in the sand, which were then ignored by both sides, revealing to us that China is not as frightening as its constant belligerence would suggest. Professor Flint, was Nancy's visit to Taiwan a deliberate or accidental success? Well, I wonder whether all this is a bit of theatre, because both Nancy Pelosi and the president have their links, their financial links to the communist Chinese, some very substantial ones, particularly in relation to the president through his wayward son, who seems to have uh, entered into a number of transactions. And then we had, when they were releasing oil from the reserves of the United States to re reduce the cost of fuel in the United States, they were selling a large amount to the communist Chinese. It is all very strange. It is in the influence, it is in the interests of the Chinese communist to keep Biden in power and to have Pelosi as the third in line and the president second in line. They don't want a strong American president. So I suspect that some of this was theatre. Nobody went to Taiwan to do what the Taiwanese need, that is, more arms and uh, being assured of being in Western trading arrangements and so on. None of that was offered, just this visit by this rather strange woman. And uh, what has she achieved? I can't see anything being achieved except that. What has happened is that the interests of the communist Chinese are there in maintaining a very weak presidency and a very weak succession to the presidency. And I'm very suspicious of the whole transaction. Well, if it was theatre, it certainly was dramatic and entertaining. So I'll, I'll give Nancy that. Now let's turn to the Republic, uh, David, and start with a very fundamental question, one that doesn't get asked very often. David, why are you a monarchist? Well, I was asked precisely this a few years ago. Somebody came out from Britain, I think it was ITV, and they were obviously building up the vault for some occasion, some terrible occasion, at the end of the rain or something like that, where they needed to have a number of uh, clips there of different people expressing their views on the monarchy and so on. And I was asked the same question, and I quickly concluded that there were three reasons for my being a monarchist. First, I believe that the Queen has been a superb constitutional monarch and in that she reflects her family. And I think particularly her mother, who famously said, when it was suggested that the young princesses be sent to Canada during the blitz in the war, she said, they won't go without me. I won't go without the king. And the king will never leave London. And this was a tremendous statement of the sense of service that this royal family has had for a very long time, going back before Victoria, it is quite superb that they have had this sense of self-service and the Queen is the epitome of that. My second reason was that uh, I have on more than one occasion sworn an oath 
of allegiance. And I noticed that uh, the minister, the assistant minister of the Republic the other day was uh, dismissing, ridiculing the oath of allegiance to the Queen. I think if you can't be believed in relation to your oath of allegiance, can you be believed, for example, when you go into court and you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? If people disregard allegiances, if they disregard oaths and play them down, then there's something questionable about that person. My final reason, and probably the strongest, was the Constitution. We are a, a, a federal Westminster system entity. We chose the Westminster system. The Westminster system developed in Britain. What it needs to make it work is at the very top. They need an institution which provides, firstly, leadership above politics. That distinguishes us from the American model. It's very difficult for the president to offer leadership beyond politics when he is belonging to one of the two major political parties. The second thing that the Crown provides in the Westminster system, which is absolutely essential, is that the Crown provides the constitutional guardian. In Australia, it's mainly the Governor-General and the Governors, but also the Queen in reserve. But that's very important because our system mixes up the powers. It doesn't separate, for example, the legislative from the executive. They're intermingled in the lower house, unlike America. And what you do need are checks and balances. If you don't have them, you're really, you're really following the warning well, of Acton. Well, well uh, speaking of checks and balances, why do politicians keep reviving this issue? I mean, we've already, we've already spoken quite loudly that we're not all that interested in it. Why does it keep coming back? Well, you're right. That uh, decision in uh, 1999 was overwhelming, notwithstanding the enormous opposition. Uh, we won nationally, we won in every state, and we won in 72% of electorates. So it was really, compared with an election, a real landslide. That was a very clear statement, and since then, interest in a republic has fallen. Now, I don't think it's because the Republicans are still so upset about Gough Whitlam or they want to have revenge for Gough Whitlam. What they detest is being accountable. Our two major political parties are not the political parties they were once. They were then under the control of their members. More and more, more than in any other comparable country, the two major political parties are more and more under the control of small cabals of power brokers who run the parties, who decide pre-selections, not on merit, but on loyalty to a given power broker. This is reflected in both parties. Well, speaking, but speaking of power brokers and, and the blatant grab for power, David, we've seen during the pandemic some rather dubious extensions of the power of politicians. Was this power grab constitutional, what you saw? Well, it wasn't constitutional in the sense of what we understand the Constitution to be. You would have to have dozens of cases in courts to try and fit it into the Constitution. But what happened was we got away from, and we've been getting away from it, what was the tradition in our states and in the Commonwealth, and that is in two respects. Regulations 
were normally made through the Executive Council, where the Governor-General or the Governor wouldn't actually be making a substantive decision. But the Governor-General or the Governor would be saying, well, do I have the power to do what you're asking me to do? And a good Governor, a good Governor-General would need strong legal advice to confirm that. And also, are there any conditions on the exercise of that power which need to be fulfilled? And very often there are. So he'd also, a good governor would say, well, you really have to show supporting evidence of this. Something like the explanatory memorandum you get with legislation. But we got situations, for example, in New South Wales. In New South Wales, the minister suddenly decided, with the Premier's support, to close down the building industry. It was closed down for a couple of weeks at a cost of $1.4 billion. And the chief health officer, the chief health officer said, well, I didn't recommend that. We didn't get the advice for that. It should have been presented, should have gone to the governor, it should have been done properly so that we, the public, knew why this was being done. We still don't know why, like many of the other decisions, we don't know why. And the other aspect is, with regulations, even in colonial times in Australia, it was normal when regulations were made that they could be disallowed in either House of Parliament. But now we found, there's been a Senate inquiry, we found that 20% of some very important regulations taken during COVID were done without them being matters which could be disallowed because they've passed legislation which took them out of the disallowance. So those checks and balances which we must have and all matters being made public, which except those which are really secret and confidential, should be made public so that we all understand why they're taking these decisions. Well, let, let's talk about the models that are being proposed. The Australian Republican movement has produced three models in the 30 years of, ex of its existence. They're obviously very busy. <laughs> The latest one recommends a field of candidates proposed by the nation's various parliaments from which the head of state is elected by the Australian public. David, which is this model closer to, the Republic of France or the United States, and should we really care? Well, this is uh, very close to uh, the Republic of Balmain. It's, it is a ridiculous republic because they've stripped the president of any reserve powers. The president cannot be the constitutional guardian. I think they've given back one small power because of the criticism we made. But the idea that the president could do what Sir John Kerr did and ensure that the constitution was observed, however unpopular that was in relation to the Labour Party, you've got to have a situation where at the top you do have a constitutional guardian. That person won't have that. It's an attempt to attract those Republicans who want an elected president with those who wanted the nominated parliamentary president. But they've taken away all of the reserved powers so that people like Bob Carr won't be upset by the president having, being elected by the people. Then to control the election, it's not a genuine election, it's a direct democracy election where the politicians direct it because the politicians will do deals to choose the candidates so we'll get Kevin Rudd and we'll get people like that as the, as the candidates. We won't have a, a free reign with those candidates. And there'll be a conflict of interest or, or a conflict 
for power yes. at the top of the constitution. Now let's get down to the bottom line here. I think, David, I mean, they want to change the constitution, but don't you think Republicans really, uh, their real intention is to, it's to change Australian culture as well as the constitution? Yes, it's to make them unaccountable, to take away all accountability, and then they all have agendas which are to change Australia in significant ways. For example, they all have agendas in relation to so-called climate change, and that is to take away reliable and cheap energy so that energy will become very expensive, which will have a dramatic effect on the economy. When people see that they're being unemployed and that their wealth has fallen significantly, they'll wake up to this, that that's what they're up to. They also bring in every new silly dogma that comes in from the American Marxists, the latest being in relation to gender fluidity, and they will push that because that suits them because it weakens the family. And that's an institution those, these left-wing politicians don't like because it's an institution they can't control because their loyalty is outside of politics, which they don't like. David, there were so many topics I wanted to bring up with you, especially the control that the Greens have in the Senate. I don't think that's what our founding fathers uh, intended when they wrote our constitution, but we will have to talk about that next week. Professor Flint, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Professor David Flint, whose opinions about the constitution and other matters are published every week in The Spectator Australia. Now, some exciting news about ADH-TV. This streaming service is less than a year old. In fact, our first show was broadcast just on the 2nd of May. This week is a, a momentous week for us as we expand to three shows. Mine's one of them. But the other is Nick Cater's Battleground, which will air Fridays at 8 p.m. So if you want to solve the world's problems on a Friday night, Nick Cater's Battleground is, your, is for you. Of course, as with all the ADH TV shows, you can listen to every episode on podcast. But I thought we'd go to Nick Cater because he is a splendid columnist for The Australian and is the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre. And his views are most certainly worth listening to. Thanks for coming on the show, Nick. Thanks, Fred. Great to be here. Firstly, Nick, as my stablemate here on ADH TV, what attracted you to this new streaming service? Look, I just think this is the way of the future, Fred. I mean, you know, you remember back, oh, what was it, 15 years ago when the dark days of the, of the Rudd government, when they, they splurged all that money on national broadband and we thought, what's that money for? Now I can see what it's for. It's to pre prevent the medium through which we can break the monopoly of traditional media and get multiple voices on the air, obviously. And ADH is right at the forefront of that. We, we, I think we're breaking new ground in Australia. And it's great, isn't it? I mean, you must feel this too, to be at the start of a project and to have somebody as sort of solid and well-known and, and, and just all round uh, reliable as Alan Jones to anchor the network and then to build it from there. So I'm, I'm sure you and I, are only the start of what, what will be a, a surely much greater and more amusing talent in due course. But, and, and of course, the way the readers, the viewers have responded to this has just been so encouraging, such an endorsement. They have indeed. They have indeed. The, the figures we're getting are phenomenal. So I couldn't agree more, Nick. This is a platform for free speech. Yeah. 
Now, speaking of that, Nick, the Liberal Party is in disarray all over the country, and that is because they have abandoned some of their basic principles. Nick, who in the Liberals will fight for the basic restoration of freedom, especially of speech? You want me to name names? <laughs> <laughs> Look, there, there are very, very good, solid people there. And, 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 you know, encouragingly, a younger generation. You know, we think of people like Andrew Hastie. Uh, you know, you think about uh, people like James Patterson, Jane Hume. I mean, these are really smart people. But I, it's not just, I, I think, as I, now, as I said in my column on Monday, it's not just this country, right? Conservatives around the world are lacking something. And what they're lacking, I think, is you know, loosely speaking, values or religion, as uh, you know, as you might even call it, because you know, conservatism has always been about three things: nationalism, prosperity, and religion or, or values. And I, I think you know, Margaret Thatcher showed that. Ronald Reagan had all three of those elements. But after that period, uh, John Howard, of course, in this country. But after that period, we seem to have focused a lot on the prosperity. And, and quite a lot on nationalism, defending borders, but have forgotten the values. What are we here to do, you know, to yes, make people's Nick, lives Nick, better? But Nick, who's going to stick up for them? I mean, we saw with the Manly Seven, with the Jersey saga, uh, viewers will be familiar that there were seven players for the Manly Sea Eagles who refused to wear a uh, jersey of the, uh, with the rainbow logo on it. Yeah. Who's, going, who's going to stick up for these people? Has the once great Liberal Party been hijacked by one world globalist? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, Fred. But look, I mean, it's certainly true that there's a... I would say their problem in recent years on one level is just that they're, they're far too cautious, they're far too nervous. Understandably, because we're in this horrible area of, of social media where, you know, a story can erupt on Twitter and then you can be, you, can, you know, your whole career can be killed the next week on Four Corners. We've seen that happen. But I, I think we have to say no, despite these obstacles, we just have to have the courage of our convictions. And I think you're going to see it, incidentally, on The Voice. I mean, the Liberals haven't said what their position is on The Voice to Parliament, and they can't because we haven't seen the details. But I think, you know, I was in Canberra this week, and I tell you, there's a lot of feeling amongst members there that they know what the correct answer to this is from a Liberal point of view, and, and they're, they're, they're moving towards actually saying what they actually think instead of being cowed by uh, wokeness. Well, how can ordinary people influence the Liberal Party? Well, they can join, Fred. I mean, people are not joining any political party in the numbers they used to. Uh, you know, I mean, they say in, in England, they say oh, the National Birdwatchers Society has got more, more, more uh, members than the Tories. I, I, here, you know, I think we, a party has to have a large and rich membership. And the party itself has got to attract people because it's only by joining the party and going through the slog of going to conferences, putting up motions, and it's, it's a hard slog, that you actually can change those parties yes, from within. Yes, but, but Nick, you're making joining a party not sound very interesting. I mean, <laughs> why can't being part of a, of a political party actually be fun? Why can't you meet like-minded people at a political party? What makes it so antagonistic these days? <laughs> parties are meant to be fun. I mean, I go to a lot of fun parties. <laughs> uh, Liberal Let's party, put the party into party again. <laughs> No. Look, it's a, it, 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 look, I think it's always been hard, right? But you, and I, possibly people are less patient than they were. They want a change now instead of thinking, well, if I want to turn the Liberal Party round 
on a point of policy, that's going to take a lot of effort. You've got to build support, but it can be done. And uh, possibly people in Menzies' generation were more attuned to, you know, doing things in the longer term. And may maybe that's it. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think pe if people are concerned about politics, join a party. It doesn't matter which party. Join a party and get involved. All right, well, let's, take, let's talk about the Constitution. I spoke with David Flint about this, but it's worth raising again. This push to make Australia a republic will result in one thing, a lack of accountability for politicians. Nick, in a time when a New South Wales minister closed down the construction industry at a cost of $1.4 billion, is this really the time to embrace a republic and give politicians even more power? Well, you've, you've hit on one of the key problems with this. There are many problems with this that I, I can see that have to be solved. We want to get this up if we want to get it up. But um, the, the accountability issue is key. So Anthony Albanese said this week that it'll be very hard for elected government to, to go against the view of the voice. The voice is probably unelected body or not elected in a very satisfactory manner, a, a body that can't be sacked, unlike politicians, right? I mean, if politicians, you know, go off the reservation as they occasionally do, you know, they're going to they're gonna be sacked by the voters at the next election. You won't be able to do that with the voice. But the idea that elected parliaments don't have any responsibility, they just hand this over to the un unelected body, you know, it's sort of COVID nanny nurse health officers on steroids, isn't it? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the voice because, I mean, you talk about it from a political perspective. Isn't it meant to help our Indigenous brothers and sisters? What, what, what's it going to achieve? Well, I... I I'm keeping an open mind because I haven't seen the details, but that's it's got to show that it's going to do something concrete for Indigenous people in the most, you know, in the areas of most need. And those are the remote and, and regional communities, the places like Yundamu, where, you know, Senator Jacinda Price comes from. She knows that area, uh, the, you know, the, the, the disadvantage there, the, the poverty, the welfare. Uh, the alcohol problems, you know, the lack of lack of schooling, you know, on and on and on. We 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 keep saying we're going to do something about that. You know, Keating's red fern speech, uh, the intervention, you know, Rudd's apology, doesn't change a thing. Now, if magically they can show me how the voice is going to do that, I'm for it. But at the moment, I'm not seeing it. Well, if one thing can change it, it's 11 MPs who are or identify as Indigenous. Isn't that enough? I mean, they've got a voice. It's in Parliament. Voice is in Parliament, yeah, not to Parliament. Yeah, and they, they, they can actually have a direct impact on legislation. It, it may be 12, actually, Fred. Um, somebody pointed out to me yesterday that Bob Catter on one occasion identified as Aboriginal. So let's take, I mean, let's take his word for it. That's 12. But it, there's, there's such a range of voices. I mean, as, as, I, as I wrote in my column or, or, uh, for my first edition of Battleground, for the, my first editorial... You know, you've got 11 very different voices, everything from Jacinta Price, you know, right down to, uh, to Lydia Thorpe at the other end and Jackie Lambie off on a planet of her own in the middle. You know, <laughs> that, how, what voice could actually encompass all that? I just don't see it. <laughs> Nick, you, uh, you mentioned in your column this week that uh, there's been a distinct decline in religion in Australia. I'd argue the opposite. I think religion is on the increase. It's just not the kind of religions <laughs> we think about. Yeah. I mentioned it on Monday night. The new religion is sustainability. Yeah. I mean, we haven't lost the urge. As humans, we haven't lost the urge to seek 
higher powers and, and, and elements of truth. But do you think religion really is on the decline, Nick? Well, I think what you're saying is exactly right. What we're saying is a decline in religion, you know, like we see the numbers of people affiliated to traditional religions falling off. So they're now, you know, Christians are a minority and a persecuted minority. That, that's true on one level, but they're not going to no religion. They're going off to the third one. And I wonder, maybe on the next census, we should have a box, you know, <laughs> Catholic, you know, Baptist, uh, blah, 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 woke. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> woke slash pagan, I'd say. Pagan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Nick, before you go, and very quickly, what, what can viewers expect on your, on your debut show tomorrow night? Well, the name says it all for a battleground, right? We're not going to shy away from those difficult... Uh, fights those difficult arguments. Um, we, we'll have my regular guest, I'm delighted to announce, will be Amanda Stoker. Um, began her life as a senator, now she is the uh, distinguished fellow at the Menzies Research Centre, so you can see how her career is really going ahead. Um, and uh, she'll be on every week anyway for, for a, a, a chat about various things. Tomorrow we're talking obviously about The Voice um, and, uh, and other things. And then I'll do a major interview, a 25-minute interview with, a, with a, a, a thinker from around the world, Australia or around the world, who can contribute something. So on the first one, we've got uh, Joanna Williams from London, who'll be talking about her book, How Woke Won, which is rather a dispiriting title, but she's got a very good analysis of this whole woke phenomenon and, and, uh, and, and really some clues as to how we counter it, because I don't think it has one. Nick Cater, thanks for your time. We look forward to watching you, your show right here on ADH TV. And Fred, congratulations. What a great opening week on the show. Good on you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Nick. That's Nick Cater, the host of Nick Cater's Battleground, which you can catch each Friday at 8pm. Now, before I go, I've already discussed just a few of the details in the climate change bill, which passed the House of Representatives today. This legislation has the potential to cause dramatic changes to our economy and standard of living. We've already seen the effects of politicians trying to force renewable energy or environmentally friendly farming practices on places like Germany, the United States, Sri Lanka and the Netherlands, among other places. The outcome is always lower standards of living, if not riots and economic collapse. So why do politicians keep pursuing this stuff? Well, in some ways, it's because the globalists told them to. The explanatory memorandum for the climate change bill says, quote, under the Paris Agreement, to which Australia is a party, countries are required to communicate their nationally determined contribution, or NDC, which sets out their emissions reductions ambitions. Don't you love that word required? Makes you wonder who's really pulling the strings, don't you think? The memorandum goes on, quote, while Australia's emissions reductions commitments are clearly described in its updated NDC, these emissions reductions targets for the country as a whole have not yet been cemented in legislation. Formalising the targets in legislation will deliver certainty to the Australian community about what these commitments are and underscore their importance to the future of this country. So our globe-trotting ministers can jet off to the next glo globalist climate fest and wave around legislation proving they mean business. Look, 
we cemented it in legislation. Our emission targets are now written in law. We know what these commitments are all right, but you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to see what those commitments will do to ordinary people. Well, that's it from me. Thanks so much for your company this week. My first full week at ADH. It's been a lot of fun. And again, tell your friends to download the ADH TV app on their phones and televisions where all our rapidly expanding content is available live and on demand. And I'll see you next Monday at 9 p.m. Good night.